Welcome to What They Never Told Us, the podcast where we explore our own personal journeys in the hopes to give you some insight into your own narrative. I'm your host, Sasha, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm your host, Crystal, licensed social worker. Yes, we are mental health professionals. However, we are not experts on anyone else but ourselves. You are the only expert on you. The information shared or discussed on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Today's episode is going to be a little different than what we normally talk about. But before we even get into it, this very important discussion we're going to have today, we are going to do our check-ins first. So Sasha, my love, how are you? Hi. uh, (laughs) How am I doing? How am I doing? I don't know. You know, this is this is what happens when you're in your feelings. I am a person who's always in their feelings. And uh, I know something's up. I don't know. I can't pinpoint exactly what it is. I do know that it's probably nothing new about how I feel about myself. It's just probably being triggered. So I would say that I am in a confused state because I have a lot on my mind. I am realizing that I want to show up perfect. And we already know that's not possible. And I also know that there, there's a part of me that is like, oh, if it's weird. It's like I'm watching myself do this thing that I usually do. I, I usually get into my feelings. And then I, I, I'm watching myself to the point it's like where, before I'm about to get tripped up, I'm like, uh-uh-uh, don't do that. And, you know, that is doing the work and I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, it, 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 puts a, it takes a lot of energy from you to do that. So I just... I'm looking forward to just watching TV and going to sleep. That's exactly how I'm feeling. Yeah. You know what's funny? I feel like we're in a similar space because I think for me, as I've been very conscious about doing the work and just being mindful of my feelings and showing up in spaces more like myself, because I feel like I, not that I recently came to this realization, but I'm realizing the depth of this like pattern of behavior of mine of ignoring my own feelings, uh, sometimes for the sake of other people, but sometimes for my own sake of, I don't want to feel this. I don't want to go there. And now I'm like, okay, you're anxious. Okay. You're happy. Okay. You're disappointed. Okay. You are confused. You're feeling something in your body, but you don't know what it is and you need to sit down and explore it. And I will say, I mean, I agree with you that you're like, oh, like, I don't want to go there. <laughs> you know, like, I'm just like, no, no, thank you. Um, but I, I think that it's one of those things like, yes, it's difficult because I think like I'm starting to realize you have a lot of up and down emotions. Like, girl, like, get it together, regulate yourself. Um, and that's me being <laughs> a little judgmental and not being compassionate towards myself. Um, but I also feel like as I practice this this thing of, like, feeling my emotions and going through all of those feelings and accepting them and feeling them as they come up, I think it'll just get easier I'll be less resistant. So they'll come and go a little bit more easily. And you just get used to, like, you just start to accept who you are. Right. So that's my hope. So yeah, I do feel like we're kind of like in a similar space there. You know, when you said that, I felt like such a little girl, like one day I will love myself. I'll accept who I am. <laughs> girl, but one day forever. we will get there. <laughs> it took forever <laughs> to get here. <laughs> so, but no, I mean, like, 
I I get what you're saying because I feel that I feel that way sometimes with you. I'm like, damn, she's so involved, so involved, and I'm like, I'll get there one day. <laughs> no, don't. Mm-mm. I but that's exactly it's it's interesting. But I I think these are things that we all need to be aware of because it's always easy to compare. It's always easy to live in your world versus understanding someone else's world. And it's always easy to believe what you think is happening is going on in someone's head is the truth. When in reality, what's happening is your own stuff giving Mm. you, it's like a confirmation bias, like telling you like, yeah, Sasha has it together. Or I look at you and I think you have it together. But, but these are things, these are important things to, to look at and, and really recognize like, okay, what is really happening as opposed to just taking it as a complete truth that, you know, Sasha has is so evolved because that check-in that I just did, I, 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 that is not an evolved woman that you hear speaking. <laughs> so I agree with you. I think we need to stop projecting what we believe onto other people. But I do want to give you credit where credit is due because I do feel like you are evolved and you're, it's, it's a work in progress. It's an everyday thing. But I think you need to give yourself a little more credit than you're giving yourself. All right. So we'll work on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to jump right in to today's episode. So like I said earlier, today's episode is going to be a little different than what we normally talk about or what we usually discuss because it is February, but more importantly, it is Black History Month. And Sasha and I felt that it would be negligent of us to let this month pass by without having some sort of discussion in honor of this month's celebrations. And of course, being fully transparent, neither Sasha or I identify as Black, so we thought it would be a little disrespectful for us to take up space in an area which is not ours to take, or to speak about the Black experience, which is not our lived experience. However, what we can talk about is something that we do our very best to practice every single day, whether it is February or not, and that is being an anti-racist. And some of you may be thinking, well, they're women of color. Is this conversation even relevant? And the answer is and will always be yes. So the approach that we want to take for this conversation is a two-prong approach, meaning this is going to be a two-part episode. For the first part, we will discuss a bit about the history of racism and its origins. And then we want to discuss for the next episode, the individual and how racism shows up on a personal level every day and what are some ways to reflect and combat it. Uh, Sasha is, um, as she likes to call herself, the nerd here. Um, (laughs) I like to think I'm a nerd sometimes, but she swears that she's the nerdy one. I think it's a compliment, though, to be a nerd. So just FYI. Um, But I'm going to let her take it away. Thank you for that introduction. I will say that I'm a nerd in the sense that I need to know the reason behind it. And I think that you become a, a little bit of a history buff. Once you start asking the whys and, you know, then you realize that there's so many different sides to the one story that we get told. I just can never leave things at face value for some reason. Um, Maybe I'm paranoid. Who knows? But before I say anything about the topic, I want to let everybody know that a lot of the historical facts that I'm referencing come from Ibram X. Kendi's book. And Jason Reynolds, who, you know, quote unquote, remixed it because Ibram X. Kendi wrote 
a whole long ass adult book. And then they did one for Gen Z, which is the one I'm referencing, which was a very light and easy read. I would suggest, uh, I would recommend it to anybody if you're interested in learning more on the, the topic. Stamped, racism, anti-racism, and you. So I want to talk about history. I want to explain why. I firmly believe that our country's ideological beliefs comes from our history. And I also know that as a society, especially as an American society, we perpetuate those ideas and it becomes part of our, our culture. So the way we started is how we're running now. And even if we don't necessarily see it, it's not in our faces. It's still very much embedded within how we move as a nation, which is why it's important to talk about the history. First and foremost, I want to talk about the power of documentation and how that can change, how not even how that can change, but how that has changed our history, especially in this nation when it comes to race. So before we even start talking about America, let's talk about imperialism and colonialism and how all these European countries were just going out and taking basically goods for themselves from people who they really weren't at war with, they just wanted it, right? So there's this book called The Chronicle of the Discovery and Conquest of Guinea. And it comes from Portugal's Prince Henry, who is the son of King John. Um, what he did was he stole the trade from the Muslims in like this northern part of Morocco. And he ended up taking those Muslims and bringing them back to Portugal to use, well, to use them as slaves, which is nothing new in the history of people and ruling. But what was a little different this time was the fact that he basically had like a hype man writing his this book on him. Um, and this is the book that I just stated, The Chronicle of the Discovery and Conquest of Guinea. And what the book essentially does is it highlights this prince as this amazing person who's doing great things. And, you know, here he is getting all these riches and goods. And what was slightly different about this prince in particular is that the way he was portrayed in this book he seemed as though he was, quote unquote, saving these Muslims, the people that he used as slaves from themselves. So he claimed to have been taking. <laughs> I love Crystal's face. She's making a face right now. He claimed to have been taking them in order to save them. When in reality, they were just using them to fight in wars for Portugal. No, uh, I think <laughs> I mean, I I guess you're right in the sense that, like, it seems like a very common theme not maybe not in the particular history you just brought up, but like just when you think about history overall, the use of slaves and slave labor and, you know, thinking that you're superior to another race or gender or just type of human being. But that is like, I think the mental health professional in me is screaming like narcissism because from the mental health perspective, like narcissism is just rationalizing your negative behaviors to the point where you believe it and convince yourself you're right because it feeds your ego. And I think like sometimes when we say narcissism in layman's terms, it means like, you know, like I think I'm beautiful and egotistical. But from the mental health perspective, that's what it means, like rationalizing your negative behaviors to the point where you believe it and convince yourself to feed your ego. And I think that like and maybe I'm just kind of like, you know, slavery is wrong. So I'm just having a hard time wrapping my mind around it. But I think I'm just trying to understand what did you have to think or what did you have to tell yourself to enable this kind of like behavior? So I totally hear you. And I'll get back to the history in just a second. But I think that every, like so I'm talking about the power of documentation. And it's so interesting to me because the people who are documenting that 
black people are quote unquote lesson or black people need to be saved, like saved. Therefore, they need to be slaves first. They were the entitled group. So essentially what they they were born into having better. So I think that alone, this like and it reminds me of, you know, divine, right? You know, you're born into it. So there you go. You are better. It, it does have a, it does have hints of narcissism because you grow up believing that there's something superior to you. It's, it's like the world validating you as an individual just for being in a in a better off position geographically. So I think that that mindset is really easy to fall into as a human being. So when we think about documentation and we think about the people who who've ha- who have actually had the power and entitlement to write and, and privilege essentially to write these these texts out they really i really do firmly believe that they believe what they were saying right so for example it's not just that book but that book kind of made it popular so then a lot of other people started like falling in line um for example there's this book called a christian directory from some philosopher i, I didn't write his name down i'm sorry you could look it up uh he basically said and stated that slavery was helpful for black people that they actually wanted to be enslaved in order to be saved which is wild to me now in in the world that I live in. Um, John Locke, one of the, I wouldn't want to say founding fathers, but he, his philosophies helped make our nation what it is at this point in the American revolution. Like he, he literally quote unquote wrote the most unblemished, purest, perfect minds belong to white people. So, (laughs) so I think that going back to what you said, yeah, you're right. I'm not going to like, I am a firm believer that that don't mean shit. But I think that these people were in a, a better off situation and they felt almost entitled. And a lot of narcissists feel entitled to what it is that they claim or how they feel. So it does make a lot of sense. Um, going back to the power of documentation, if you just look at how the slave trade continued and more stories began to emerge in order to justify getting free labor and raping and killing people off of their land, it it's just part of our culture. And that's why it's so important to understand what our ideological belief is as a nation. Like, where does this culture come from? Where does this history start? How did it get to that point? Because sometimes it really is just timing and geographical location and being in the right place, right time. And on the flip side, being in the wrong place at the wrong time and having the wrong color skin. Because now people have all these ideas and beliefs about what skin means right so there's this curse theory where white people well mainly white colonizers like european colonizers thought that black people were black because they were in the hot sun but they were cursed by god so they were placed in the hot sun so for some reason the rationalization of being black always came to something negative it always came to something like, oh, God's punishing them, or they're less than, or they don't deserve this, or guess what? They need to be just like us. They're being saved. And again, I am not condoning this. I'm not saying it's right, but I do think it's part of the history of human behavior, if you will, which is super important because human behavior has a lot of, has has everything to do with why we have these cultural beliefs, because we're the ones who set it up and keep perpetuating it to begin with. Yeah. No, I I agree. I think I'm just mad. I just don't like this. I, Whatever. I just don't like it. Even in the book, he talks about people who, you know, the first anti-racist, people who were against it. And it's so interesting because they were against it 
because they like smaller groups, but they always got shut down, <laughs> by mm. the way. Obviously, this hasn't been eradicated, um, but smaller groups who knew what it was like to to suffer or not be accepted fully for who you are would stand up for the rights of black people within, within the history of America as a nation. And they would get shut down again. Right. But right. I do think that there were people like you who would be mad. It's, it's not like the whole world just agreed to it. I think that people began to agree to it for different reasons, which, well, it, it just sends me to the next point of how America became America. If you think about the first Puritans who came over, they came for, like, I guess, religious freedom. They wanted to practice a pure form of Christianity. And these two lovely gentlemen were called John Gotten and Richard Mather. And it's really, really interesting because you talk about the history of, of documentation and you talk about beliefs and how people get these things in their heads. They were big believers in Aristotle's philosophies, which if you don't know, he really believed in a systematic hierarchy. So let's take it way back when to the first democracy in our, like, in our world, uh, the Greeks. Aristotle was Greek. And he believed that non-Greeks were less than. So he believed in this hierarchy where you already had people who were not good enough or to vote or to be a part of the system that he lived in and that he helped create. But I also think that goes back to what that human behavior and that human instinct of feeling entitled to something that you were just born into. I can't say that it's true. I don't believe it. But I do see why they believed it. Again, not condoning it. You know, it's kind of like... Imagine you're little and your parents, well, first of all, you're seven years old. You've had your own room for seven years. You've had your parents to yourself, yourself for seven years. You're chilling. Every, life is good. And you have never asked for another sibling. And then all of a sudden, your parents bring home a new little baby who, guess what, will have to share your room with you. Trifling. Mm -mm. <laughs> so I'm not saying that, I'm not comparing people who... I, I guess I'm trying to bring the human, the humanistic part out of it where feelings are going to come up. And I've seen this like when I do when I used to do therapy with children, like when you have if this was the actual case, like and you ask the kid, the seven year old kid to draw a picture of their family. Yo, that seven year old kid will sometimes leave the baby out because they're like, uh, -uh right. that doesn't exist. Exactly. Yeah. And they don't want it to exist. <laughs> well, Crystal obviously has personal feelings about this because she knows what it's like. I was the like. first born. <laughs> so, <laughs> Tell I me more it. about it. I get it. Yeah, I feel like that's another episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny with me. I was not the first born. I was the middle child. So, you so were there the was someone. Okay. <laughs> now, we now we know where you wow. are. Wow. No, I'm just, I, I think I, I was in a position where I understood how to play well with others because there was always someone there before me and then there was some, someone came after me. So it was just very natural for me because I never had that opportunity to be like, nah, this is my right. Do not step into my room. Don't even come for my toys. Like I was never like that because of the fact that like I was, I came into this world almost being forced to share my space with somebody else. So it's different. Um. So, okay, these guys, they believed in Aristotle. They believed in like a systematic hierarchy. So they believed, which is so ironic because they were like, I don't want to say exile, but they were, they fled from Britain in order to practice their religion because it wasn't accepted. And now they're 
saying that their religion is the best and there's no other form and it can't be disputed. Interestingly enough, they actually created a culture through school and through their church, which has a lot of power. Um, I'm going to name drop that school, and that's Harvard. And think about the power it holds today and think about the culture that it started with. So imagine how that culture keeps playing out. And this is why it's so important to look back. But they they set up Harvard as a school that was going to adhere to the belief of like the Greek and Latin philosophers. And those were the you know, that was like the main I don't want to say the Bible because they were also religious, but no one could dispute the Latin and Greek texts. And that was a rule. Basically, so they had already set some set something up where people couldn't even argue against it. So again, that sense of entitlement, we're right, everything else is wrong, keeps coming up, and it it gets created within our culture. And I'm pretty sure, I'm not pretty sure. I know it's still there, but a lot of people don't know these things, which is, I don't know. I find it super interesting. I think I'm like super nerd. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is interesting. I think I'm just kind of like trying to taking the human aspect of it I think like what I what I'm struggling with is like yes this is very human behavior but this is also very wrong so just trying to find that balance of like you know you know like what's what's within our nature and then what's ethical what's good and what's right um and I think like this does help to look at the human aspect of it it just doesn't make me any less upset (laughs) about it yeah, I listen, I agree with you. I Like, I keep saying I'm not condoning this because I never want it to be seen as something like I truly believe is correct, you know, to treat people as if they're in a, a system, like a, a hierarchy, a hierarchy in the sense that we are one person is better than the other just for whatever reason. But you're talking about nature, like human nature. And it's interesting because I two terms that I really like <laughs> that I thoroughly enjoy No, uh, and it has to do with personality traits is xenophobia which is basically a fear of allowing people into your in-group the other one is xenophilia and it's basically a tolerance and open-mindedness to new people aka being allowed into the in-group and I think that from an evolutionary perspective and you think about survival of the fittest these two approaches are essential to living life. Like if you think about when we were roaming around being hunters and gatherers and you put yourself in a position where one tribe encounters another tribe, are you going to meet them with open arms or is there a possible threat? Are they going to steal your food? Are they going to rape and pillage your children? Are they going to basically eradicate you as a whole tribe? Therefore, you have no more lineage as like a, a tribe, right? And then xenophilia, like I can also see why people would be more open to other tribes because A, you are more likely to survive. You have more people to work with, more people to protect. Community is, is extremely important even now. Mm-hmm. Also, you are able to learn different things. Like let's say you meet another tribe who's used to, I don't know, they grew up in an area where they had different I don't know, different rocks, girl. I don't know about these things, but I'm just making this up in my head. But it's real, though. Like, you know, maybe one tribe uses tools that they made out of trees. And now they're like, oh, we could use tools made out of rocks. Amazing. I don't know. I'm just saying, like, there's an opportunity to learn. So I understand both sides of why people would shut the door on another group or why they would be inclined to open that door to another group. At the same time, (laughs) I... I don't think that it makes it right in terms of like how slavery became 
super normal and it, like they just kind of claimed that black people were happy to do this i think that what these personality traits that humans have does is it rationalizes things for us it helps us create a mm-hmm. story where we feel good about ourselves and we could sleep at night and say okay i know that you know i just stole land from native americans and i'm literally abusing i know it's, it's harsh the way i'm saying it but i'm literally abusing people that we brought over from africa but guess what i can't let them in i have so and so resources and i deserve this i think it's interesting and something that i do want to note about xenophilia is that they talk about it as a tolerance so even if you're tolerating someone's differences it doesn't necessarily mean you like them so i really do believe that human beings are always going to be on the fence like we're always cuz there's this fear of what are you going to do to me are you going to be kind to me or are you going to try and completely wipe me off the face of the earth like and it makes so much sense if you think about like colonizers and how they came over to the united states and they didn't necessarily have to use weapons to kill off a whole population of native americans they just brought diseases over so again through an evolutionary perspective it makes a lot of sense no i feel like we're you're, we're walking down like in <laughs> in movies where you're like a ghost and you're like going back to your past life this is what i feel like you're you're <laughs> taking me on a trip and i'm like on this journey with you so i'm listening girl i'm here keep going i appreciate that so if you really think about it all these things create this idea of having power and having control and let's just be real if you have power and control like let's go back to that 7-year-old kid who doesn't want another brother and sister they had all that space all like all of their parents to themselves and now they have to share it it's not necessarily something you want to give up and also think about a time where someone had control over you and someone could make decisions for you and how that made you feel and how uncomfortable it made you feel like i don't know i remember when i was little when my mom would like force me to do something i didn't want to do or she would literally tell me what i should be doing i just remember being like mad pissed like whatever like you can't tell me what to do when in reality she could but it would piss me off so much so imagine grown as adults being told you know having to share or having to shift their mindset it's going to create conflict within you and i think that has a lot to do with again how we function like if you think about the way the brain responds to change the brain is does not like change the brain literally from the beginning from the moment that you are born the brain will start to function so that you have to do the least amount of work possible so all this for me brings up the idea of power and control like how do you have autonomy over yourself or over the group that you belong to i think that we are inherently biased meaning that you are always going to do what's right for you like that's what that's how the brain works the brain does something for you it's it's geared to help you survive and i think that that's how these things have come about um i think it's a natural response which even happens when we actually want to make a change that can benefit us so let's say for example you want to lose weight or you just want to change a behavior of yours it's really really difficult to get into that habit because the brain is geared is literally set up for you not to make that change i think inherently human beings they're not inclined to lean into change and i think a lot of this has come up throughout our history because of who had power who had control and who wasn't willing to change right and i think when change means giving up some of your control you're going to be even more resistant to it 
Yeah, 100%. So why would you want to share, right? So continue on the history. And after this, it'll be done. It's really important to note who had power and control. So up until the late 1600s, the system that we had was elites versus non-elites. And these were indentured servants that were white and black. And no indentured servants had the right to vote. They didn't have much rights altogether. But something shifted that. And that's um, what it is known today as Bacon's Rebellion. So very long story short, Nathaniel Bacon was this guy. He was entitled himself. He wanted basically to take the Native Americans off of uh, Virginia's land. Because this, this had been a long-standing battle anyway since colonizers began to come. But this one was well known. And he basically requested from William Berkeley, who he was kind of somehow connected to, basically to remove Native Americans. This governor, William Berkeley, he wanted to keep the peace between the Native Americans, the indentured servants, and the, the non-elite whites, which they weren't known as the non-elite whites until after this. But what happened was Bacon got really pissed off and he started to create his own militia against Berkeley just to get him out of government. And what he did was he created a militia that was both indentured servants of white and black people. And he almost really did what he set out to do, actually. I forgot the date, but I know that at one point in time, he actually took over Virginia and he burned Jamestown down. And weirdly enough, he died a month later from this fever that he got. So then Berkeley comes back and the elites kind of get power and they're really shook at this point. They're like, holy cow. We almost got overthrown by all these indentured servants that we actually need. What are we going to do? So for the very first time in American history, what you see is something known as divide and conquer. So like after they noticed that this rebel militia had so much power because they had united as white and black servants, what they did was they created a very distinct split amongst the servants. This is the first time you ever hear what we know today as white privilege come up in history because what they did was they pardoned the white rebels they gave them kind of like a, a pass and they said okay they they gave them like a certain amount of whippings and that's it it was done but the black rebels the ones who were in the militia they were punished and guess what the white rebels could punish them so what happened was what? yeah so what happened was that they gave the non-elite whites power over somebody else that is exactly what divide and conquer is. You give someone who is lesser than you power in order to make them feel superior to somebody who used to be in the same group as them. Now there is a split. And now you don't have a group that's going to go against you. Right, because now they can't team up to go against you. So it's, it's a like mind trick to maintain your own control. 100%. So now what starts to happen is after Bacon's Rebellion... People started getting scared. They were like, oh, not just people. The elite started getting scared and it became something known where they were like, okay, how are we going to prevent everybody who is less than, because a lot of people were, from being angry at us because we have more and because we keep accumulating more off of them? Interestingly enough, and this is just timing, I think, and this is how things kind of come together in history to create culture, but the grandson of those two guys that I mentioned, so... Two people from the same side, from their sides of the family, married, man and woman, and then they had a grandson named Cotton Mathers. And he, he was really, really smart. He understood there was political conflict, and he was obsessed with witches, which is, which is really interesting. I, I don't know how people get these weird obsessions. 
But he apparently he lived his life following rules all the time. And he felt that anything bad was to blame on like evil spirits and witches. So he wrote this book called, see, documentation again, Memorable Providences Relating to Witchcrafts and Possessions. After this, the idea of witches cursing people became really popular. And what happened is that a priest or someone in, or like a, an official in Salem, in Salem, Massachusetts, he, his daughter had like specific symptoms of being quote unquote possessed. And this is how the whole Salem witch trials uh, got blown out of proportion. But what happened that people usually don't talk about, well, they do, depending on who's teaching you the history, is that the devil himself, the one who would be possessing people, he was always in, he was usually described as like a black figure or someone that looked black or someone that portrayed black features. And what that does is it further demonized black people. And it further allowed people to create that split in their mind, like, oh, I'm not letting you in, you're less than, right? On, on a cultural level, no one ever has to say these things, but when you play onto somebody's fears, people are definitely going to start rejecting something that they think can hurt them. And th that is human mm -hmm. nature at its best. Absolutely. So interestingly enough, all this happening, the Salem witch trials, the previous rebellion that showed the elite that they could be overthrown... All this is happening in a very specific moment where, lo and behold, tobacco sales are on the rise. And what do we need? We need more indentured servants. And it's easier to get black indentured servants because now we gave white people power and it's easier to get it from the, the slave trade. So now how do we keep this order? How do we keep them separated? And this is a point in time in history where you start to see actual documented laws dividing black and white people against each other. So before what was starting to happen was the idea of privilege and, you know, one had more power over the other, but now you see the divide. So some of the first laws to be placed in America to further create this divide were no interracial relationships. You had tax imported captives. If you were classified as native or black, basically the language used was the same language used to label livestock. So you're, you're immediately being demoted to like being an animal. It was written in law that blacks could not hold office. And this is the most interesting part for me. Not to say that the other ones are okay. Property owned by any slaves was sold away. So remember, like at one point in time, you can get out of your indentured servitude if you worked for it. But now any property owned by slaves, it was given away, which is, if you really think about it, it's poverty. It's, it's like putting somebody at like having nothing. And white indentured servants who were freed were awarded 50 acres. That's the opposite of poverty. That's wealth. You're given wealth. So this mm -hmm. is like the, the actual split that I think that it's super, super, it's not just ideological. It has become something that you see even now. Not owning land in this country is huge. And I talked about it before in regards to generational wealth. If you don't have anything to fall back on, you're poor. So I think like what I'm hearing, and I think as we got to the Puritans and Kind Mathers and all of that, you know, when you're thinking about history in America, speaking to the power of documentation, I think my mind's going on a million paces. I think like documentation is very powerful because I think like even the history that we're taught in schools is... We, we say it all the time. It's like, who who wrote history? Like, whoever won, right? Like, or whoever had the power, whoever was superior, right? So we get this version of the quote-unquote truth that is not necessarily the truth. But I, I think, like, what's maybe 
I don't know if blowing my it's it's blowing my mind and maybe it shouldn't. It's just kind of like the the start of a lot of the the things that are still happening in society today. I guess these ideals, this way of being like the divide and conquer, power and control, viewing black people as less than, it was really what kind of interwove like the fabric of our country. That's this is this is where we started. This is, you know, what our country was built upon. And in next week's episode, we're going to be talking about more of the individualistic part. We do have to look at how this history from hundreds and hundreds of years ago translates into today. And it really just creates racism, structural racism, racism that is, like I said, so interwoven into the fabric of our country, into into that cloth that it's everywhere. We have three forms of structural racism that kind of manifested out of the history that Sasha told us about. That is institutional, cultural, and individual. So institutional racism refers specifically to the ways in which institutional policies and practices, basically like laws, policies at at a job or at Harvard, which was part of our history, um, create different outcomes from different racial groups. So the institutional policies may never actually mention that specific group, but their effect is to create advantages for whites and oppression and disadvantage for people from groups classified as non-white, right? So I guess an example, I know that I'm jumping forward here in terms of history. In 1868, after slaves were freed and given citizenship, they were still not given access to all their rights as citizens. So one of those things was the right to vote. If you remember back to history class in high school, there were poll taxes, literacy tests, fraud and intimidation, all turned African-American people away from the polls, right? Um, Until the Supreme Court struck it down in 1915, which was a pretty long time after, um, if you ask me. I just want to know, and also a little over 100 years ago. And like, if you think about the history that I started talking about, it's over 400 years ago. So this wasn't even that long ago. You're right. So in in 1915, many states used the grandfather clause to then keep descendants of slaves out of elections, right? So they just found another way of doing it, right? Because the grandfather clause said that you could only vote if your grandfather had voted, except that was impossible for people who were slaves because your grandfather wasn't given the right to vote anyway. So it was just another way of kind of getting around that. And I mean, we still see voter suppression today, literally in our most recent election. Voter advocacy groups in Georgia filed a lawsuit back in December of 2020 asking a federal court to make the state restore about 200,000 voters who were removed from voter registration lists in 2019 on the grounds that they had changed their addresses, right? So the ACLU in Georgia said that those removed from these lists were likely to have been young voters, voters of lower income, and citizens of racial groups that in the past have been denied the right to vote. So the suit came after the Georgia Senate races, which weren't that long ago, where neither candidate received 50% of the vote sending, you know, the contestants to runoff in January. Luckily, Democrats won both races. Thank you, Stacey Abrams. She's literally holding it down in Georgia. Shout out to you, a queen. We stand. But yeah, but basically, we still see voter purging 
today. It just looks different from from what it looked like before. And, you know, that is so wild to me because I keep saying this, but when you look at the makings of our country and how, you know, that fabric you're talking about that we were woven from, you think about the the cultural piece to it, the idea of me being better than you. I'm not saying me and Crystal, I'm just saying in general. And then you think about how that manifested into whites versus blacks, all for the purpose of keeping power for those who had power. And and you think about the idea of what it was of what people saw as black and how people saw black people as less than and how that keeps showing up now. It's like it makes so much sense, especially just knowing that story. And that segues perfectly into cultural racism, which refers to the behaviors that reflect a worldview that overtly and covertly attribute value and I guess normality, whatever that really means, to white people and just whiteness overall. And it just devalues stereotypes and labels people of color as other, different, less than, invisible. Sasha's example helped us segue but I mean something more concrete if you really want to see uh how cultural racism plays out today open up google or your internet web browser whatever and type in professional hair what do you see you see mostly white people or women showing off their hair and then when you google on professional hair you see mostly black men and women and their hairstyles, right? So even the way we're characterizing people's natural hair, like we're already labeling it, right? So that's cultural racism. And that's just one very small example. Then we have what we'll be talking about next week, which is individual racism. And that refers to the beliefs, attitudes, and actions of individuals that support or perpetuate racism. Individual racism can be deliberate. So, you know, when we're thinking back to insurrectionists uh, taking over the Capitol, things like that. Or the individual may act to perpetuate or support racism without knowing that they're doing it. And that could be, you know, just by kind of maintaining the status quo. And we'll, we'll get more into it next week. I don't want to delve too deep into it. But there are a lot of ways in which we uphold white supremacy and that doesn't necessarily mean you're running down the street with a confederate flag people can uphold white supremacy whiteness can be racist without really knowing it and this is something that we really really need to be conscious about and this is why we felt that these conversations are important and this that's why we're having them again I will always be someone who looks at the culture. I should have been a sociologist instead of a a therapist. But I think looking at the culture is extremely important because human beings need culture. We function off of being in social groups. We thrive from being in social groups. And if you're not taking a look at the culture that you keep perpetuating, like playing into and, and then teaching your children this and then so on and so forth, it's going to be really hard to understand these terms like whether it's structural racism or it's cultural racism which is what I'm talking about now or if it's just individual racism but it all starts from this idea that was given to us or we feel is right or wrong and it just kind of keeps happening and that's why it's important as a human being as an individual to reflect and and look into yourself and figure out what it is that you are doing like how are you playing into this Right. Because I think that we all play into cultural norms because we, mm-hmm. we need to be part of the group. So with all that, I want to end this episode by saying that we took this all the way back. Right. 
to how the ideals of racism originated, but I want to be mindful that there are a lot of things that have happened since where Sasha left us off in the history lesson to to where we are today. Mind you, at the point in time in history that I stopped, the American Revolution didn't even begin yet. So we weren't even like a full-blown nation. There we go. So just saying. So we all know that there was slavery, abolition, the Civil War, Jim Crow, the Civil Rights Movement, Black Lives Matter, and so much more, right? Um, Between before the American Revolution to, to present day. We didn't cover that. We didn't have the time to cover that. But we definitely encourage you to look at the real history of this country, the revisionist history, if you will, because, you know, them textbooks be lying, and really kind of do the work to understand even further how we got here. And because we're mental health professionals and not historians, it was important for us to assess the origins and how these ideas became ingrained in us as a country in terms of like, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where white was the dominant culture or the dominant race? So yeah, I think it was interesting to see how through history of thought became a belief, became behaviors, became actions, became laws, became policies, and again, just kind of was interwoven into the fabric of this country because it was built on the ideals of white supremacy and this is our history and we need to know it in order to combat it. So make sure to follow us on Instagram at Never Told Us Pod and let us know what you thought of today's conversation. You can also email us at nevertoldthispod at gmail.com. And most definitely, especially since we have a part two to this episode, make sure to come back next week so we can tell you what they never told us.